Hello, and welcome to Simple Pursuit, the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our prayer that you will grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that you will be blessed and challenged as you listen in. Grab your Bible, because here is today's teaching. It has been said of this book, of this letter, that if it could ever be described as a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. It was not actually said about that. I think that was Winston Churchill about somebody else, uh, maybe about the Russians, if I remember right. But it is the last book of the Bible, the last of the 66, but certainly not the least, um, the book of Revelation. For some of you, now, we gotta have this disclaimer, all right? Because of what I say, don't put me in a box, a theology box, and walk out, okay? Read it to the end. If we were going to go through the whole thing, you would get the picture of where I have landed on this wonderful book. But for most, you see a roadmap to the return of Jesus, and you look for every little literal interpretation in modern times that you can. You have poked and prodded these magnificent visions that John saw through Jesus all throughout this book. You're hanging on every word that your favorite TV preacher and his book series has put out on the subject. Or some of you are believing that the Left Behind series is as good as gospel truth by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. Okay? Then there's the rest of you who are scared of this book. You are the minimalist. The minimal interaction, the better. On the whole, you look at the book of Revelation and you understand that in Christ, he wins, thus the church wins, and that is enough for which you will largely ignore this book. But there is one great big theme, and it is simplistic, because I'm a simple kind of guy, and it's so, so true, and it is God wins, okay? As weird as it might sound when you read through it, and as broad and expansive as this book is, it is the big idea that in Christ Jesus and through Christ Jesus, God wins, This book has detailed for us how God, through the Lamb, rescues and redeems people, how he defeated Satan or defeats Satan, how he routes out evil, how he will restore creation in the new heaven and the new earth. Eventually, in eternity, we will dwell with him, those who are in Christ, and he will have his people in the new heaven and the new earth. For all of eternity. There is, there's really not another book that is as relevant for us today as this book. And I don't say that for the reason that you think I'm saying it, which is because war is breaking out in Israel. That's not why I'm saying it. It isn't because, as many people believe, that it does lay out a blueprint of events that are going to transpire between now and the second coming of Christ. 
I will not satisfy your curiosity about when Jesus will return, therefore I won't have a date for you, sorry. I'll just make this prediction, he will return. Um, In Revelation, friend, it is in your Bible, and it is there to reassure you that in the 21st century church, as the church globally suffers, it is there to reassure us that God wins. Because when you're in the middle of suffering and persecution, it sure doesn't feel like God is winning. But he is. It focuses on the unimpeachable glory and sovereignty of our God in, in the Trinity. And he has determined to bring his people into everlasting joy. And that's what we need to see. When we come to this book, we need to remember that here is the glory of Christ, here is the glory of God, here is the work of the Holy Spirit bringing us to the end. To the degree that you've been led to think otherwise, that this book is about something else, really can show how far off course we've gotten with this letter. John intended it, Christ intended it, to encourage and correct and strengthen the church. Just looking at the title itself for a moment, the revelation. We take our word revelation from the Greek word apocalypsis, which sounds familiar, right? Apocalypse. Now, when I hear the word apocalypse, I immediately, I can't play it, but if I could, I would pick up my guitar and sing, it's the end of the world as we know it, right? Declaration, uh, Independence Day, That's, that, that song came back into, into importance when Independence Day came out on the silver screen back uh, years ago. But that's what we're thinking. It's the end of the world. It's coming to an end. But that's not actually what that Greek word means. The Greek word means an uncovering, an unveiling of something that was previously hidden or kept secret. Not it's the end of the world as we know it not the study of end times. It is an unveiling of the glory of Jesus Christ. When we approach this letter from John to the church in that fashion, it changes, it changes our outlook. Time and time again throughout history and scripture, there were men like Moses who prayed boldly, I wanna see your glory, and they couldn't. God hid their face from it. Here, John gets a full glimpse in Revelation chapter one of the glory of Christ and he can't take it. He cannot take it. There are four views of how to interpret this book. I wanna go through them quickly if you would like. A handout, I have a one-page summary prepared that I can email you this week. Uh, Just again, like you did, some of you did last week. Email me and I'll get it to you. But uh, I want you to know that, uh, of course, there's those who look at it and say, it's all done, it's all finished, it's been completed. There are those, the futurists, which probably most of you think you land in, um, where chapters 4 through 22 are all in the future, having yet to be accomplished. Um, And then there's the idealists, which believes largely the book is symbolic, and it's good for all ages of the church, all times and epochs of the church. Um, and then there's the eclectic view. That's kind of where, pretty much where I've landed. Um, it's where you're going to take a little bit of all things, of all the viewpoints, and try to mash them together. Because 
Um, some parts have been fulfilled. I think you can look back in history and see that there are places where there, there's a time in the church where this event took place. Um, it describes some, though, that are still uh, to be fulfilled and some that are happening currently now. Um, and so that's kind of where I land. And as I preached through it previously, that's how I approached it. And it, uh, um, it felt good. It felt right uh, to me. But when you read through this letter, we won't forget that it portrays some really bizarre pictures and images. There are lots of numbers. There's lots of symbols. All of these things point us to the time between Jesus' first coming and his second. And it reveals his glory. We have to remember, it reveals his glory. So, to summarize the summary of Revelation, I'll just quickly say this. One, this book is written that you will have hope. That you will have hope that is unshakable when suffering arrives. When you're following Jesus, it is in scripture that we will suffer. We will face persecution at some point for that following of Jesus. And so, when it happens, that you would remain unshakable. Because your God is not moving, therefore we have hope. Second, that you would be encouraged to walk in holiness, even when society, who is, which is incredibly seductive, comes knocking on the door. And it will. That you would be filled with blessing because you are found faithful. You will hear, as we go through the seven churches that are written to, you will hear in that theme, to the one who overcomes, to the one who is faithful, to the one who walks according to the way. I want you to be found faithful and therefore receive the very best of God when we get there. That you will heed the warning of judgment for those who are falling away because there are some who have heard the gospel and fall away. That you would combat heresy and that you would combat deception in the church. This book is quite useful for that. That it would also pour fuel on the fire of missions for the nations because this is where we read every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nation, every people will be at the throne. And Perhaps most important that we will know the incomparable glory and majesty of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We get John's words. Someday we will get it in person, in the presence of his glory. So let's look at verse 9 together. I'm going to read through verse 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lamp stands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. 
and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he, did, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And as we begin this book and read, to read through it together as a church, as your people, and to hear some messages from it, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see your glory and your presence throughout, even in this day that we have gathered right now in this moment. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for you are the exalted Lord. You are present, and you are with your church. Father, that we would faithfully obey the insights that we gain from this letter, your holy word, this letter that you gave to John. Father, we gain strength through our Lord and through the presence of your spirit. Lord Jesus, speak to us now, we plead, amen. Let's look at verses 9 through 11 quickly this morning and just quickly see that John has suffering in service. This is John's suffering and service. Danny Aiken stated it like this. He said, a study on the book of Revelation may possibly be titled, The Normal Christian Life. Prosperity gospelers need not apply. Here is John, the disciple that Jesus loved. That's not how he opened his letter, of course. It's not how he introduced himself. Rather, he introduces himself as your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom. The author and those who read it, the church family, and our fellow sufferers together. John is one of them. As this letter is written to the seven churches that I read there and to which chapters three and four address, the church as a whole was persecuted. All throughout time, the church has been persecuted someplace, somewhere. Now, for John himself, John has been exiled on a small island, an island that is about 10 miles long and about six miles wide, incredibly rocky. It is inhabitable, but it's not friendly. It's off the coast of Turkey, an island called Patmos. He was sent there. He was exiled. He tells you in verses 9, the end of verse 9, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Following Jesus is costly. One of the things we need to remember about this book is that it shows us that following Jesus is not easy, it is costly. And John is the prime example of why the prosperity gospel simply does not work and it is a false gospel. This is why the name it and claim it fiasco that we live in today is absolutely wrong. John is the disciple that Jesus loved. Not that he didn't love the other ones, but that specific phrase is used of John several times. He is the thing, he, in, in the, you'd think that the disciple that Jesus loved, the author of the Gospel of John and three other letters, 
first, second, and third John would know how to name it and claim it if that were a true gospel. Because he lived and walked and studied under the man for three years, the God-man for three years. You think he would understand that and know how to apply it. But in fact, it is costly. When you preach the true gospel, it is costly. In a sermon series on Revelation, David Platt pointed out that at least three times in Revelation, when Christians are seen as suffering, it is because they are speaking and witnessing about Jesus. We have to endure affliction. Enduring affliction is not gritting your teeth and bearing down. It is overcoming temptation through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is remaining faithful and true to God when the world turns against you. This is why we sang that song, I will not be shaken because my God will not move. Paul said it best to the church in Acts chapter 14. And he said this in verse 22. He said that they were, the apostles, were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. John chapter 15, verse 20. Jesus says, remember the, world, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So we understand why John is where he is. He was preaching the gospel. Then we find out it takes place on a Sunday. Oh, that our Sundays would be so special. The Spirit of God came. The message is heard before it is seen. John had listened to Jesus for years, three years, listening to Jesus teach and preach, conversing with him. But here you'll notice for John, his voice is a little bit different. John never describes Jesus' teaching as the voice of a trumpet in his gospel. But something has changed. Something is dif different. He says he speaks like a loud trumpet, not the peanuts teacher. That's more like a lousy trombone, okay? Okay. That is not the king of kings and lord of lords, all right? This is a loud trumpet, like think bugle, right? You guys that remember those old uh, Western movies where the cavalry comes riding in, you got the bugler, you know, and they're going, charge, you know, think like that, but magnified a million times over, all right? It speaks with authority. Now, yeah, he's not playing a trumpet, okay? Just case in point. This is a comparison, like a trumpet, a simile, right? A comparison using like or as, right? Revelation is full of that. Does that mean Jesus is playing a trumpet? Does that mean Jesus is a trumpet? Well, no. It means he's, it, it, it's sounding forth a command, right? He's taking charge. He's got authority in the universe. He's got authority on heaven and on earth. And as he said, let there be light in the very beginning. And there was what? Light. So now, when Jesus speaks, it catches John's attention. He catches his ear. It captures his heart. And it's written to the seven churches. And he is commanded over 12 times in this letter, write this down. So it's not a dream. This is a direct word from God to these churches. What are these churches? They are seven real churches. They're not figurative. They are literal churches that did exist at one time. And we'll work through those churches in the coming weeks. But it's best to take each one as its own in some form of fashion. But they all can also represent the church in every age. And I think if you were to read through them all at one time, you would find things in all seven that apply to Coastal Oaks Church today. 
on some level, some form, some fashion. And we're gonna work through those in the next couple of weeks, but just, just know that it's there for us to read and for us to grow and to sharpen and challenge us. I want you to take note of this. When you find a guy like John who's in a difficult moment in his life, there's a, lot, there's a very common thought that God wants nothing more to do with his people than when they're down and out, right? That's not the case for John, and it's not always the case. It is in the suffering. It is in those moments of suffering when we are being persecuted for preaching the gospel that we will hear God the most. It is in that suffering that he will stretch you and exercise your faith. It is that experience that is the deepest moments of his grace and his mercy to the fullest extent possible. Now, we look at verse 12 and we see the exalted Christ. Verse 12 through 16, we just simply find this description of this Christ who is no longer the last, the last time John saw him. It's not the same. It's, it's very different, this Christ Jesus is. He's very different. This is a portrait of the glorified Christ. Now, if you were to sit down and try to sketch this out, it wouldn't make sense, okay? John is giving us the best description of as he can, making comparisons to what he knows at the time. This is that end time sovereign judge of the world that we are looking at. And as he's giving us these descriptions, we can understand what he's alluding to and how this portrays his character. This is a prime place where you can get bogged down in all of those details of each little feature and try to make something out that's not there, and you'll lose sight of the big picture, which is this is the glorified Christ. And what John saw would encourage his heart, but it would also take him off his feet. And he turns and he sees seven golden lampstands. This comes from God commanding Moses to build the golden lampstand back in Exodus with seven branches, although this is not the menorah. It's plural in the scriptures. He says seven golden lamp stands, more than one. So it's not the menorah, but it's seven golden lampstands, which all represent the church, which this, for this image, he gives us. <laughs> Thank you. I wish he would have given us all the explanations of all the images and symbols that he gives us. But for this one, we get insight. The seven golden lampstands. Zechariah has a similar uh, vision, a seven-branch golden lampstand. The eyes of the Lord there, he says, are, are, are ranging throughout all the earth. Okay, here, the seven churches to which John writes are represented by these golden lampstands. Notice, though, who, the important part is not what does it look like and da-da-da, it's who is in the middle of it all, right? And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and then he goes into the description. Who is in the middle of the lampstands? One like the son of man. That is Jesus. The son of man, that title, son of man, it is one of his favorite titles, self-titles that Jesus uses to refer to himself in all of the gospels. One's like a son of man. Friend, this is Jesus. He is, what we need to see is not only is it Jesus, but where is he? He is right in the middle of his church. All seven that are listed, and even still today, we would say Jesus is still with us in this moment. The son of man is here. Now, the son of man phrase comes from Daniel chapter seven. 
There he says, I saw them in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Now, when Jesus used that phrase, son of man, man, that triggered the religious leadership of his day because they knew what he was claiming. That's how important that title was. It was a trigger for the Jewish religious leaders of that day because they knew Jesus was now beginning to claim Messiahship and being the son of God. There's a reason he kept saying it. It came from Daniel chapter 7. Now we see in the Revelation, John uses it. He says, it is like a son of man. There's something both familiar to John about this son of man that he sees, and yet something altogether different. The son of man that he sees has changed. He's different, yet somehow John recognizes him. It is the exalted Christ that John sees in this moment. Of course, he would recognize him, but he's altogether different because now he is glorious and magnificent. And it's as if John can barely see and believe with his eyes. Friends, what we pull from this is there's a glorious future for the church because of the glorious and glorified Christ Jesus, that we believers will be changed in glory as well. New bodies like Christ's glorified body. It's going to be magnificent. It's going to be glorious. We want to be there. You want to be there. But you will only be there if you are in Christ. What are the details that John gives us about what he sees? One, he says in verse 13, the long robe and golden sash. He sees Christ Jesus, the great high priest. It's the imagery of the robe of the high priest from the Old Testament. Now, here's a key. I didn't tell you this a while ago. The book of Revelation is the most inter- testamental book we have, meaning it quotes more of the Old Testament than any other book in the Bible, okay? It is intertwined with the Old Testament, okay? You have to go back and look at the Old Testament to see that's, I'm not doing this justice today because I'm not going to go back and pull all of those out, but in your time of reading and studying, when you come across a reference to the Old Testament, go back, do yourself some good, and read what John is referencing, Okay, here's the imagery of the robe of the high priest. The length of the robe signifies that this son of man has authority, that he has status. The golden sash looks to Daniel chapter 10, verse 5. There he is an exalted and dignified uh, figure. And here it points to his work of the atonement and that he loves to intercede on our behalf. Think Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, he says, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He, uh, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is the one in the long robe and the golden sash. Next you see his white head of hair. That's wisdom. Bless you, all of you who have that white head of hair. Our, our time, we want to we, we be young. We want to be dark-headed. We, want, we don't want all the marks of wisdom. We want our skin to be soft and smooth. We don't want to show our age. But the Bible, friend, the Bible is completely opposite. You might as well just embrace it. Church, we need to embrace that. We would do well as a people to embrace what the scriptures teach us about the white head and the white hair. Here in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, the hair of the ancient of days is described there as white like wool, which represented accumulated wisdom and glory. What a beautiful thing that is. 
Here's a side note. When you get to Laodicea, you'll find there that wool is a major industry for Laodicea, and it is where this letter, one of the churches this letter was written to. So it is, I think, somewhat connected. But it's not white wool, it's black wool. And it's very expensive. And Laodicea was well known for its black wool. It was highly sought after all over the world. And they were wealthy because of it. But you know what their problem was? They weren't depending on God's provision. They were depending on the black wool. Friend, you and I in the church, we must depend on the white head and the hair, the wisdom of God. The wool and the snows, dazzling whiteness with wisdom and purity and splendor. Majestic in every way. Then we see in verse 14, he has blazing eyes. Not Superman shooting lasers and heat things out of his eyes. But this also comes from Daniel chapter 10, verse 6. There, this is a picture of divine insight. Friends, when Jesus says, I know, to their seven churches, when he says, I know your works, I know your deeds, I know, I know, I know, this is why he knows. Blazing eyes. It is able to penetrate to the core of our condition. You think you're hiding your sin from Jesus. You're not. He knows. He knows everything about you. He knows how many white hairs you got up there. He knows which ones are turning gray next if you're like me. And he knows if you ain't got none up there. He knows every single thing about you. He knew when you woke up this morning. In fact, he probably called you back. He said, here, enjoy some new mercies today because this day is new. He knows everything about you. He knows every thought, every word that comes out of your mouth, every thought that captures your mind, every evil deed that's in your heart. He knows everything about you, and he knows everything about his church. There is no facade in the church. There is no wearing a fake mask. We can put up those things for which we can try to hide behind, but there is nothing that Jesus cannot see through. He infallibly knows and diagnoses his church and, his prob- and their problem. He knows. He is the judge. He judges rightly. Then you have his bronze feet. There's a sense of permanence there. Those bronze feet give strong and solid and a stable foundation. It's also a a picture of purpose and direction. These bronze feet have crushed the serpent's head and his opponents. And if you keep reading, he'll do so throughout time. Polished bronze have been refined in the fire in a furnace, and so there's also this level of purity and glory with it. The next, the powerful voice of Jesus. Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 2 says that the voice of Yahweh is like the roar of rushing waters. Think waterfall. Think ocean waves pounding the rocks along the coast. It's not quiet and peaceful. This word is authoritative. Like the trumpet blast calling soldiers to attention or to charge. This voice is proclaiming judgment upon the nations. This voice is right and just in every way. Not only is he calling justice upon the nations, but he's calling salvation for his people. The powerful voice of God. Then he's got in his right hand stars. In the right hand, the scripture is is symbolic for power and authority. And holding the stars symbolizes possession It symbolizes protection. He is our refuge. He is our shield, our fortress, our high tower. Christ is in complete control, my friends. No matter what you see in the news, no matter what you think is going on in the economy, no matter who is in the White House or the outhouse, Christ is in control. He's got it. We've got to trust him and continue moving forward. He's got a sword coming from his mouth. This sword is the primary image of Roman strength. 
The Romans are the ones who sent John to exile. They're in power when this is written. It's that strength of Rome that John might have in mind here, but it's not the point. He's giving a simple, a simple picture here that the message is, that again, that Jesus Christ is in control. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, Isaiah said. Isaiah also said, he made my mouth like a sharpened sword. Think great big sword, long, like Braveheart type sword, not the smaller Roman sword that we think of in, in the, the, the armor of God that Ephesians talks about. This is a great big sword. It's authoritative. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says the sword is the word of God. It's divine in its judgment and power and authority and accuracy. It cuts, it cures, it hurts, and it heals. And then his face, John says, it's a radiant face that he is praiseworthy in all of his appearance. Brilliance, holiness, majesty, awesomeness. Why don't we have facial descriptions of Jesus? Well, if you go back to the Big Ten, we're not supposed to make an image to worship. Please don't try. Don't try. You don't need it. You got the word of God. But here, his face, his radiant face is awesome, powerful, and majestic. Friends, he is worthy of our worship. It calls us to, to, to offer our service, offer our lives to him, worthy of all that we can give him, that he is a God who is present with us, and his presence gives us that assurance. And in his appearance for John, we take away that he is absolutely praiseworthy in all of his brilliance and holiness and majesty and awesomeness. Now, here is John in front of Jesus. Look at the impact that Jesus had on John. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Well, that doesn't make any sense. I thought Jesus was my homie. I thought he was my bro. I thought he was going to welcome me and slap me on the back and say, welcome home, bro. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. This is the impact of Christ. Friends, the presence and the power of Christ Jesus ought to overwhelm and encourage us at the same time. When John sees his master... In the full glory of heaven, he is absolutely overwhelmed. And since Jesus says, hey, don't be afraid, he's afraid. You see it. You see it in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, when he cries out, woe is me. The friends see the grace of God here. That in Isaiah, God takes one of the, the burning coals from the altar and he touches Isaiah's lips. And Isaiah can then listen as the atonement had been made for, for Isaiah to be in the presence of God. Here, what is John afraid of? Because John knows that he has fallen short of the glory of God. He knows he's in the presence of the holy Christ Jesus in the glorious one, in a glorified place, and that we are sinners, and it's more than anything John could take. And so he does the only thing he can do, which in our own sinful condition should cause us to fall at the feet of Jesus. And you see the grace of Christ Jesus here again, laying his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. He's the only one. 
He was the first and only one to die as the atonement and the propitiation for our sin. He took our place. He will be the last one to take our place. He will be the only one to take our place. It's okay, John. I am the first and the last. Our sinful condition versus the magnificence, magnificence of the glory of Christ Jesus should and would overwhelm us even in our times of worship in this room. We can't just turn to Jesus and run up to him and say, hey, bro, how you doing, homie? Doesn't work that way. You're incredibly disrespectful of the glory of Christ. So I want to challenge you to approach this hour that we come every week together, okay, hour and 15 minutes or so, that we come together, our prayer services when those get started again, in your life groups, anytime you open your word, the word and you're by yourself, that you would come with this kind of sense of reverence, that he is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Respect and honor the name. John fell at his feet like a dead man. It's not abnormal. It's quite normal in scripture. Don't be afraid. John, I am the living one, he said. He was dead once, but he calls us to look and see now that he is alive forever. He died once on the cross, but never again. The atonement was paid for. The atonement is done. And he says, I am the first and the last. John, I am the living one. I died. Yes, John, you were there. You saw it, but I am alive now. You saw me then too, John. Just remember. But I'm alive forevermore, meaning he's looking forward to eternity. He was the first and the last. He has authority over death. He has authority over Hades, over the grave, the place of the dead. Death claims the body. Hades claims the soul, but not unless Jesus says so. Well, that didn't go well. I have a master key to every door in this building. You don't. There's only a couple other people that do. This key will unlock everything. This key will unlock all the offices. I have no idea what this key does. And this will, this will uh, dog all of the, the push bar doors. But this is the master key. You hear what Jesus is saying, the imagery he's saying here? He says, I have the keys of death and Hades. You don't have the key. He's got the key. He's the master. Jesus has a plan. That plan is going to unfold as he now commissions John in verses 19 and 20 to go forward with the rest of the chapters. And his plan is to show how it all unfolds, how God's plan will unfold. In verse 19, he says, what you have seen, what is and what will take place, write it down. What we have is a timeline for the perspective of the book. God is in charge of the past, he's in the present, and certainly in charge, and he's in charge of the future, as the book will intertwine all three. And then verse 20, he says that, there, uh, that uh, for the mystery, he gives us the insight, the mystery of the stars you saw, those are the seven golden lampstands, the stars are the angels of the seven churches, the lampstands are the seven churches. Those angels could be the church pastors, they could be messengers, they could be literal angels. I'm good with all of those. 
Fact is, is that God has called them. God is sending them. They got a word for the church, and he's in charge of it, okay? And then you've got the lampstands of the seven churches. Friends, Jesus is in charge of all of it. He's moving it even today to the end. He is going to protect the church. He is going to vindicate the church when the world is against him. We need not fight for ourselves. He will vindicate us. This is encouraging to us, and yet we will also hear a rebuke from Jesus because that's his job as our good shepherd. When and where we need it. What does it all mean? I'll summarize it as quickly as I can. Rightly understood, the book of Revelation had a word for the first century church. It has had a word for the church all throughout history, and it has a word for us today. And it'll have a word for the church tomorrow. Because the heart of the message is this. Keep your eyes on the exalted and glorified Christ. Because we are not alone in this world. Keep your eyes on him. Friends, as the church, we are watched over. We are protected by the glorified, exalted Christ Jesus himself. He is the one with power over the nations and has everlasting dominion and glory. Thus, we need to sing and praise him all day long. And when we sing in our hearts, we are singing, All hail King Jesus. All hail the Savior of the world. All hail no one else but King Jesus. He is the great high priest that has put away the sins of the people once and for all. He is the aged and wise and mature, the great white crowned ancient of days, yet with eyes that are aflame with the fire of youth and energy and hope and exhilaration for his unstoppable plans for the church throughout the entire world for his glory and for our good. And so we don't fear time because he is the first and the last. We don't fear life or death because he is the one who lives forever. We certainly don't fear death because he is the one who holds keys to the grave and to death. He is the one that unlocks it or he is the one that shuts the door. Now, we go out these doors into the mission field where there are lost people dying and going to hell. And we have a message for them. So we got to go and live this day. And we run with purpose the race that is set out before us. We run a race that does not end with our glory in mind, but with the glory of the conquering Messiah. Race with passion for the glory of Christ Jesus. Share Jesus without fear of what others will think of you. Live in such a manner that is worthy of the gospel and the price that was paid for it. Because Jesus is right here with you today. Thank you for listening today. For more information regarding Coastal Oaks Church, like service times, or what to expect upon your visit, go to our website at